We'll hear argument first today in case 07552, Sprint Communications Company versus APCC Services, Inc. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. <clears throat> Chief Judge Sintel uh, observed in his dissent below that there are assignments and then there are assignments. And that's essentially going to be the theme of my uh, presentation this morning. Uh, it is, I think, common ground between the parties in this litigation that if you have an assignment, represents the grant of the entirety of both the right and the remedy, that is, the, the complete assignment of the chosen action, then under those circumstances, there's no question that the assignee has standing under Article Three. By parity of reasoning, if all that the assignee receives is a power of attorney, a mere collection agency role, under those circumstances, I think it's common ground between the parties that Article Three is not satisfied. Two other data points come from say, say it again. What, 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 what is the common ground? I think the second part of the common ground is that if all that the assignee receives is the power of attorney, that is, to serve as the lawyer for the assinore, under those circumstances, the assignee doesn't, cannot, has no concrete stake any more than, than I do in my client's interest in these particular cases, and there I don't think anybody disputes that Article Three is not satisfied. Now, the Court in Vermont Agency sort of identified two additional data points. First of all, it made clear that a 10 percent bounty by itself, unattached to anything else, is not sufficient. It largely, I think, for the same reasons why the lawyer's claim is insufficient, because that's not tied to the particular right at stake and therefore is inadequate to allow Article Three to be satisfied. The second half of it is, though, if that bounty is coupled with an assignment of the rights, and even if that's a partial assignment of the rights, then there is Article Three uh, jurisdiction under those circumstances. So that if these contracts provided that the aggregators will turn over uh, all of the proceeds of the litigation except for one penny, then you'd be satisfied? Well, I'm not sure I would be satisfied. I think, there, I think it is a different — I think the answer is that might satisfy Article Three. The, the only reason I'm reluctant to say that that's the line that ought to be drawn is because this Court's taxpayer standing cases seems to recognize that there are situations where there is a sufficiently de minimis amount at stake that under those circumstances Article Three won't be satisfied. But clearly the, the cleanest line to draw is in circumstances where you have no stake in the outcome. That clearly is beyond what Article Three would be. Well, and this is not really a very significant case, is it? Because I, I presume that these uh, enterprises that uh, that uh, agglomerate uh, claims and uh, bring suit as a collection agency, they could simply get their compensation instead of by way of a of a flat fee uh, by you know claiming uh, entitlement to two percent of of the rewards. I, so it's no big deal, I mean, really. But it, but it is a big deal, not necessarily because of the importance of the Article. I think the Article Three part of it is still a big deal. I think requiring, as a separation of powers matter, that there has to be a concrete stake in the party bringing the litigation, that's an important principle, and the Court shouldn't abandon it. And that's posed directly in this case. But more fundamentally, in terms of the importance of the underlying process, remember here, we're talking about an assignee who takes on 1,400 different Asinor claims involving 400,000 payphones. And, and, and that's the problem, is that when you break this down and you allow just simple assignments to satisfy Article Three and prudential standing concerns, then what you end up with is this mass tort litigation. But it would be the, just the same, Mr. Phillips, would it not, 
if the arrangement was that the aggregator gets a piece of the action. Let's take out the de minimis one cent, a significant state like the Kitam plaintiff has. So you would have the same problems that you're complaining about with regard to discovery from the individual PSPs, the same problem with respect to counterclaim. That's so it seems to me that, as Justice Scalia suggested, this isn't about a whole lot. If just by the device of giving the aggregator part of the a piece of the action, the suit would be okay because the prudential objections that you are making here would apply just as well. Well, and and I would I would still assert those same prudential objections in the hypothetical you pose. What I'm saying is that when you when you when you have an assignment. And, and there is a bounty built into it, however you want to define the bounty, whether, whether it's a penny or 10 percent or 2 percent or whatever. That may satisfy Article 3. I, I understand that. That does not answer the question of whether there's prudential standing under those circumstances. In I, that, I, go on, I'm sorry. In that context, Justice Ginsburg, you do have the problems. You don't get the discovery. You don't get to use the efficiency of the counterclaim process. And there are serious questions about whether or not there are race judicata and collateral estoppel effects. And I would argue in that context that there's a very significant claim that those proceedings ought not to be entertained by a federal court as a prudential matter, not as a matter of Article What if all of the claimants uh, uh, assign their claims to uh, something called an agglomeration trust? And the uh, uh, the person who's uh, bringing suit here brings it as a trustee. He has no interest in it personally, and he's compensated the same way, the same way this agglomerator is compensated. He has no personal interest. Uh, he 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 could sue, couldn't he? The, I mean, there, there is a long tradition of allowing trustees to bring litigation on behalf of the trust, because that's the only way that a trust can, in fact, so enforce once again, its rights. it's no big deal. It, I mean. It, well, it is a big deal because trust relationships carry all kinds of additional legal consequences. I mean, what is, what is particularly offensive about this arrangement, Your Honors, is that the Asinor gets all of the benefits of being able to bring mass tort litigation with none of the responsibilities. He would do the same thing in Justice Scalia's example if it, if it were a revocable trust. The trust could do exactly what the aggregator is doing here. That's true, but there are uh, additional trust responsibilities that would attach to that well, process of an entire legal regime that, to deal that, with that. that might protect those who assigned their interest to the trust, but I don't offhand see what difference it would make, uh, what, those resp- what difference those responsibilities would make vis-a-vis you and your client. Well, again, Justice Souter, I think the answer probably is going to depend on how the Court interprets the prudential standing doctrine. Again, I don't have any quarrel as an Article Three matter, because I think it's one of those long-held traditions that, that trustees are allowed to bring litigation on behalf of the trust, and that's understood. But the, but the real issue is not whether the trustee can sue. Whether the, the real issue is whether the trust can sue. Right. And I mean, that's if, where the if, claims if are. The tr- it seems sure. to me, in, in his example, if the trust can sue, why can't the aggregator sue? And your answer was, well, trustees have, have certain responsibilities, but I don't see that those responsibilities inure to the benefit of your client. 
uh, or to an opposing party in litigation that the trust brings. So I don't see how that would differentiate it. Well, there are two differentiations. One is that there is this entire legal regime that, that regulates trusts and that has allowed the court to, the courts for 200 years, probably longer than that, to be comfortable to allow litigation to proceed in a particular way. But second of all, and the second answer to your first question is, the prudential concerns remain just a, potentially just as serious. I think the question is, do you want to create litigation devices that allow the courts to avoid, or to allow lower courts, or more to the point, allow plaintiffs, to avoid the requirements either of Federal Rule Civil Procedure 23 or the Associational Standing Doctrine? Those are doctrines that are designed to limit mass tort litigations in, in particularized circumstances. You mentioned, you mentioned discovery as a big item. I don't see why you can't get discovery against uh, this whole bunch of people. Because they're, they're not a party to the litigation. I mean, you can get discovery. There's subpoenas out there and depositions. And right, but, Justice Stevens, if you sue me, you know, you hail me into court, you put me to the burdens of being a defendant in litigation, the least I, can, I ought to get out of that is that I can turn to you and ask you to admit certain facts. Right. I can turn to you and ask you to answer certain interrogatories. And I don't have to go chasing you down, because you've already submitted yourself to the, to the course, personal jurisdiction of that situation, court. You, you can do the same thing. You can file requests for admissions and serve interrogatories. I don't understand why you can't do that. Well, I can serve them on the on the aggregator, but I right. cannot serve them on the party who, in fact, has the relevant information that I need. Well, I, I have to use third-party subpoena powers. The relevant information. I'm sorry, Justice. I Stevens. would assume the aggregator would have the relevant information. The, 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 in some instances, it might or it might not. The, the problem is the aggregator's got to get the information. Yeah, but they have to, they have the burden of proof in the case, and I assume they have to investigate the facts and be prepared for trial. And that would help on the affirmative case that they have to put together, but it doesn't help with respect to the counterclaims. I thought Quest's amicus brief does a very nice job of explaining that there are a lot of situations where the, where the payphone operators are overpaid and it's very difficult, first of all, and the aggregator has no idea or any incentive to find out any, about, any of that information. And when Quest made the requests of the aggregator saying, provide me with the information, the uh, brief quotes in a variety of places, comments such as, you know, whatever the, our aggregator says is fine with us or I don't care about, the, the, about those claims or, or answers like that, which — if I sue you, or if, me, if you sue me I, and I ask for those, I don't, you cannot give me back those answers. But you can make that same answer if it's just a standard uh, assignee for collection of a, of, of a debt for a single person. Right, but if it's a simple assignee for a debt and nothing more than that, just the power of attorney, or are you talking about the full assignment? No, no, it's a full assignment where everybody agrees that they're standing. Right, you but in those circumstances. You can make the same argument, oh, well, he might not have all the information. Right, but at least there he is also responsible for both the, the – he has the entirety of the right. He has the right and the remedy. So that whatever counterclaims you have operate directly against that particular individual. But even in that context, Justice Kennedy, it seems to me there's a fundamental difference as a matter of prudence between dealing with a, with a single assignee back and forth and, and the disputes that arise there and the difficulty of discovery that would exist there and the situation we have here where you, where you have 1,400 payphone operators. You have, a, you have a discovery problem. I don't see that it's a standing problem. And, and uh, the two things it reminds me of are, one, a very common financer takes an interest in receivables, and he's going to have to collect on those receivables, and there may be 50,000. 
That could have the same kind of practical problems. Or we had cases in the First Circuit you may or may not be aware of where somebody went around and had assignments for 50,000 cabbages that were delivered a day late in 50,000 boxcars, and each one was worth about $10. Nobody figured a way out of that. They had to pass a special statute. <laughs> there was, and, and so it seemed to me you're better off than the cabbage people because you have two possible remedies, one on, on uh, discovery, uh, you could ask the judge, judge, see what the Communications Commission thinks. It's called primary jurisdiction but, of the kind. Or you could go to the FCC and you say, FCC, you got us into this. Uh, now, you, you have some rules here that make some sense in terms of collection. You have both those agency avenues open to you, not open to the cabbage people. And uh, uh, this doesn't seem a standing problem. Now, what's your response to that? Well, uh, there are two elements of the standing problem. The first one is we're, we're, we're all — let's be clear. We're talking about a hypothetical that's different from this case, because we're talking about a hypothetical where, in fact, the assignee has a concrete interest in the outcome of the dispute. Here, the assignee has no interest in the outcome of this dispute. So the Article Three problem arises there. The question is, if you have a minor uh, uh, amount at interest, even if it's, you know, concrete, but nevertheless — approaches de minimis, should you nevertheless entertain that case? And I think the answer to your question, Justice Breyer, is that instead of making this into a federal court case, where you have 1,400 claims like this, what the court should say is that the better course to follow is, in fact, for the plaintiffs to take their claims, if they want to, in an aggregate form to the FCC, because that's the right institution to deal with it, because it doesn't have the limitations of Article Three, and it doesn't have the limitations of prudential standing to interfere with its ability to provide complete relief. And, indeed, if you read the respondent's brief, they identify as the prototype litigation in which this entire system worked effectively a claim that was, in fact, litigated in front of the Federal Communications Commission, not a case that was litigated in front of the Federal courts. So to my mind, the right answer to this case is to take these cases all to the FCC, not as a matter of what we do as primary jurisdiction, but simply as what the plaintiffs do because they don't have the, a vehicle to bring this to the Federal court. What do you do about, a, a, about ag, uh, aggregated plaintiffs uh, who are not in the field of Federal regulation? They're just sort of out of luck. They, they, can they petition for the creation of, a, of an FCC that they can take their claims to? I mean, th th this is a fluke that, they, that there happens to be this federal agency they could have gone to. Certainly our principles of standing should not depend upon that fluke, should it? Well, I think when the Court's considering the questions of prudence, you know, it can certainly take it into account. And maybe that would argue in the alternative in another case, if there weren't such an available vehicle, that the Court might be more inclined to entertain it under those circumstances. Would there be review? The FCC, you pointed out, doesn't have Article Three barriers. So the FCC decides one way or another, one party ends up losing, is there review in the federal court? I mean, Justice Ginsburg, that is Spiller. That's what the Court said in Spiller, and I think it's a logical outgrowth of what the Court held in Asarco, which is that even though a claim doesn't start with Article Three jurisdiction because it's not in an Article Three entity, that when a final determination comes out of that entity that is, in fact, enforceable as a right, that that right is enforceable consistent with Article Three notions. And that's true. That was what the Court essentially, without dealing with Article Three at all, said in Spiller. That's clearly what the Court held in Asarco. What is the advantage? You have proposed the FCC route. That obviously wasn't taken here. What is the advantage of going to federal court on claims like this? 
from my perspective or from the plaintiff's but, but perspective? Why would the plaintiff make such a choice if the agency because because the 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 plaintiffs here the the payphone operators get a free pass in this proceeding they get all of the benefits of being able to go to federal court and bring litigation with none of the burdens of having to deal with discovery or cross claim or uh, counterclaims or or even necessarily being bound by doctrines of res judicata and collateral estoppel so you get all the benefits and none of the disadvantages that's why it's an advantage to them to go to federal court how, how is what it different? different? Oh. I just, just on that very point, how, I need clarification on this. How is that different than the case of the financer who takes uh, 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 accounts receivable, which is very common? You finance the accounts. You take a secured interest in accounts receivable. Right. And, and there you might foreclose on the, secu- on the secured interest. Then you, as the financer, have to collect from everybody. How is your case different from that? Well, I don't know. The respect you were just talking about. Right. Well, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the real question is, I don't know why that, that case is necessarily in federal court either. I mean, a lot of that. No, I mean, I mean, I mean there, there may be many reasons for that. I'm just saying it's a normal, practical problem, I believe, in the banking community. I, I right. Don't but know. most of that's litigated in state court, in which case there's no serious problem no, no, 99% that, look, of the time back anyway. Back to my question, because I'd like to get an answer to sure. it. In respect to the problem you were just mentioning, the discovery problem of counterclaims or those problems. Is this case any different than the financing case I just mentioned? No, I don't think so. I think think those exact problems would arise in that context as well. On the other hand, that's that's a situation that seems to me is largely driven by the exigencies and is by accident in federal court. This is a situation that is driven into federal court by the plaintiff's choice and by the ability and by the preference to be in a position to get the benefits of litigation in federal court without any of the detriments that might otherwise can, arise. Can you that explain case. that? I, that that really goes back to your answer to Justice Ginsburg's question, and it, I, 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 I'm not getting it. Uh, you, sure she said, you know, why, why would you go to the federal court if you can go to the FCC? And you said, well, you get the benefits of being in the federal court. What, maybe I should be asking uh, other, other counsel this question, but as you understand it, what is the benefit of being in the federal court rather than the FCC that makes this so attractive? I, I mean, I, I guess I would encourage you to ask counsel on the other side, because I, I, you know, personally, I would think that they would have a full and fair remedy. So you don't know of any benefits? I'm sorry? You don't know of any benefits? I, I don't know. Of, well, other than the ones I've already articulated, where I think they get some advantages of being in a federal court and have Well, you eliminate step one. I mean, you go to the FCC, you uh, you win there, then you got to face an appeal before the federal courts. Why not go right, right to the federal courts immediately? You, you, you eliminate one level of uh, litigation, though. No? Well, and that's that, and that may well be his answer. I don't but I'd, I'd like you to go back to the uh, question that Justice Stevens, Justice Breyer, and I, and I asked you. Uh, you said, "Oh, there's a problem. There's no, there's no counterclaim. Uh, we can't get the information." Uh, and and that and we say, "Well, that happens in every uh, accounts receivable assignment. There's no problem there." And then you say, "Well, that should be in state court." But that's that's not right. Are you, you, I, I thought it was agreed that if they're uh, stipulated by you at the outset. That if there's a standard assignment for collection, you can be in a federal court. There is standing. Right. There is Article Three standing. And, and Article Three. Right. 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 But the, but and let's let's not lose sight of now, the and, core and question. If, that's if you're presented. saying if you're saying that it's the aggregation that makes it difficult to reach everybody, well, that's just a question of discovery, and it's still the um, the aggregator's responsibility. If the right. aggregator can't answer necessary questions for discovery of the suit, the suit's dismissed. Well, that may or may not happen. But Justice Kennedy, let's let's be clear, okay? The, the core question here 
is whether or not an aggregator who has no claim, who has no stake at all, not a penny's worth, can pursue this litigation. On that, it seems to me the answer should be no. There's, there's no benefit to it. The concrete stake is a, is a core requirement of Article III, and the Court ought to enforce it as a separation of powers question. The, the issues that, that we've been discussing here is what do you do when you get past that? And when you have some kind of a bounty that's been attached to it, and how do you resolve that? And in that situation, which is not this case, I still think that there will be grounds for prudential standing to serve as a basis to eliminate this kind of litigation. On but the other hand, it may well — I'm sorry, Your Honor. You said the aggregator, if I understood your brief right, that the aggregator could sue on behalf of these 1,400 plaintiffs, naming every one of them as a named plaintiff in the complaint, and still the aggregator would run the show because they each authorized the aggregator to conduct the litigation. Right. Now, it seems to me that it's not very prudential to require that there be 1,400 named plaintiffs instead of one. Well, I mean, the price you pay, <coughs> bless you, is that you, when you bring federal court litigation, is that you have to have, you have to expose yourself to exactly the burdens that come with it. You also pay a price. I thought that's what you were going to get. Talk about prudential <laughs> standing. Fourteen hundred filing fees is pretty prudential. Right. Mr. <laughs> Pell, of course, clearly have an interest in that. <laughs> but I thought your position was they could all join in one complaint, just as long as they're all named separately. They, they can join in a single complaint. Now, the, you know, the court can consider whether or not it thinks joinder is appropriate under those circumstances. But, but they could unquestionably do that. But then again, they are then at that point a plaintiff in the litigation, having brought this action, and therefore subject to all of the burdens of being a plaintiff in the litigation, including submitting themselves to the personal jurisdiction of the court. I mean, let's, let's be clear about this. There are 1,400 names out there, people all over the country, that, that under, the, under the plaintiff's aggregator's theory, we have to go chase down in order to obtain discovery, to obtain any of our counterclaims or anything like that. Whereas if they come into this court and they submit themselves to the jurisdiction, at least the process works as the Federal Rules of Civil Rights. Well, I, I don't like to be the broken record and just not get I don't see why that isn't the responsibility of the plaintiff. The district, the, the district court said, now, you've brought these claims of the... Uh, the defendants need this this information. You go get that. That's your responsibility. Well, I, I don't doubt that the that the trial court can do that. But the question is, why do we have to go to the burden of having to chase all of that in the first instance? The, I mean, the, the the respondents' brief at page ten criticizes us for not having brought fourteen hundred third-party complaints, not having sought additional discovery. All, all of those are burdens that simply arise in this context that otherwise do not exist in an ordinary case where you simply ask the party who has the actual claim to be the plaintiff in front of the court. And that's — and again, I, I, just to be clear, we're still here dealing with the hypothetical. We're not dealing with the core question of what do you do with a plaintiff who has not one penny at stake in litigation that, as the plaintiff described, is all hard cash. I'm sorry. The, the only way you, it seems to me that you can eliminate what you regard as a problem is by having 1,400 separate actions so that in any given case, if you want discovery, your plaintiff, the person who has got to provide that discovery, is standing right there. And, and I don't see how you can get the benefits that you are claiming entitled to 
without having 1,400 separate actions. If you don't have 1,400 separate actions, whether you have an aggregation like this, whether you have a joint action, whether you have a class action, this problem of chasing down, as you describe it, is going to be there. So it seems to me the prudential question for this Court is, do we really want to require 1,400 separate actions so that you can have your perfect paradigm of private litigation? And, and to, to say, yes, we want 1,400 actions, it seems to me, is a stretch. What do you say? I, I think the answer to that is that when you, when you deal with mass tort litigation, the, the rules of civil procedure ought to apply in that context as it applies in every other place. And when the courts deviate from the standard paradigm for, for litigation, they do it expressly, either through the rules or through doctrines that already exist. And so we have Rule 23, which sets out very clear protections for both the court, or for not only for the court, but for the plaintiffs and for the absent defendants, or absent, absent plaintiffs and for the defendants, and there's a clear mechanism for conducting 1,400 claims all at once in a particular situation. What does that situation? do with, with that? I guess that goes to prudential standing. It, it goes has nothing directly. to do with Article Three standing. No, to be sure, again, I, I don't think that, I mean, the Article Three debate here seems to me to turn solely on the question of there is no stake in the outcome of this case. That's a bedrock requirement of Article Three and ought to be a basis for simply reversing. But, it, you know, to the extent that the court then goes beyond that and worries about what's the next case going to look like and where, what are the prudential limitations, which I don't think the court has to resolve any of this. What I would suggest is the court should be informed by Rule 23 and associational standing so and those doctrines that are designed Are you to saying, in effect, that if we get to the prudential standing point, the answer is that in the absence of a rule comparable to Rule 23, we should not recognize prudential standing, but that if we adopted a rule that sort of regulated how this would work, prudential standing would be appropriate. Is I, that basically I, I think that's the right answer, is that the Court shouldn't just make it up as it goes along if there's a need for this. Look, the truth is we've been here 200 years. We haven't had to have aggregators standing all of this time. It strikes me that there's no compelling need for change, and, and that for that reason the Court ought to go back to the paradigm example. Plaintiffs to defendants, is, and you have normal discovery and counterclaims. Is there any significance to this being the, the um, this assignment transfers legal title. True, there's an obligation to uh, pay uh, to pay the separate um, PSPs. Um, but does anything turn on legal title? For example. Suppose, the, the, I gather, gather the check would be payable to the aggregator if the aggregator prevails. Could a creditor of the aggregator come in and say, stop, uh, you owe me lots of money, and I want to reach those proceeds? I mean, that, that uh, I mean, the, the, the proceeds, I, I assume, it, it, do, the, do, the, do those claims arise out of the relationship between the they phone no, operators no, they, and the aggregator. This is completely unrelated to that. It's just is, the garnishment. These are just on it. the creditors, or even the, the the aggregator goes bankrupt. Yeah, I, I assume that those monies could be taken out of the aggregator, and then the PSP would have a claim over against the aggregator, and that for breach of contract. If I could reserve the balance of my. Thank time. you, Mr. Phillips. Mr. Engler. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. One of the last things Mr. Phillips said was there's no need to change the law in this case, and I strongly agree with that. Assignees for collection have been litigating in federal courts since at least the 19th century, and there is not one decision 
cited in any of the briefs in this case, in which an assignee's lawsuit was dismissed solely because of what the assignee intended to do. And also not one in which the uh, uh, issue of standing was, was raised and decided. And our jurisprudence says that where we do not address the issue of standing, uh, the case has no precedential value on the subject. Uh, Justice Scalia, a, a single decision, a small body of decisions that don't address the issue of standing can be looked at in that way. But a unanimous body of case law, two decisions from this Court, arguably a third decision from this Court, many decisions from lower courts. I don't consider two decisions an enormous body. But there is an enormous body in the lower courts under Rule 17. Well, we don't count the lower courts. <laughs> Mr. England, with, with, with respect to what weight we should give to those decisions, I, I just want to put a simple hypo, and, and, and I'll, I'll ask a question on it. Assume that in this case the assignment well, — assume another case, rather, in which the assignment is identical to this one, except that the terms of the second agreement, i.e., if I, uh, the aggregator, collect anything, I give it to you. Assume that is part of the first agreement, so that there is an assignment, and as part of the assigning document, uh, there is a state obligation on the part of the assignee to pay all proceeds to the assignor. I am assuming that your position would be the same. Is that yes, correct? Yes, absolutely. Now, my question is, you're, you're taking that position, I think, just as you did in response to Justice Scalia, on the grounds that there is a huge body of law that assignment for collection uh, conveys adequate standing. But are any of the assignment for collection cases in that body of law clearly cases like the one in my hypothetical in which the assignment itself, uh, by its terms, requires the total payment of any benefit back to the assignor? Uh, Justice Souter, the cases don't always discuss the way in which the assignment arose, but typically in those cases they simply say there are these two promises. And they say the fact that there is a second promise makes no difference. That's my position. The fact that there's a second promise, whether in the same document or in a different document, makes no difference. What, what's the earliest of those cases in our court? The earliest case? Uh, the earliest case in our court that, that, that upholds uh, this kind of, or the, without specifically addressing the standing issue, uh, uh, gives judgment. The earliest case that gives judgment is Spiller in 1920. 1920. Yes, in, in um, Vermont agency, uh, in the Vermont agency case, which dealt with, uh, with Keaton, that uh, many people, including the Justice Department, thought <clears throat> did not uh, confer Article III standing, we held to the contrary that it did confer Article III standing, mainly because it had been around forever. It was, it was the understood part of the judicial power when the Constitution was adopted. Do you have any case prior to 1920 in which uh, English courts or even early American courts thought that this, uh, that this would, would be sufficient to, uh, to bring a lawsuit? Well, assignee standing, not assignee for collection standing, but assignee standing is referred to in Blackstone's commentaries contemporaneously with the Constitution. Sure, but there's this wrinkle of, of arguing that — More than a wrinkle, the assignee keeps the money. But the wrinkle of arguing that that makes a difference, as far as I know, first arose in the 19th century. And every single case in every single federal court that has considered the question under any body of law has rejected the argument. Isn't, what's well, what's the earliest federal court case you have? Uh, late, 18, late 19th century. 
late 19th century. Yeah, it's a long well, time. not under any body of law. I, I didn't see any cases cited after we had uh, more carefully explicated our understanding of Article Three. What's the latest case from this Court that you've got? <laughs> well, as, as you know, I argue that the Vermont Agency case strongly supports us, but if you want to well, case case specifically about assigning the bounty collection, yeah. the latest case I have is Titus in 1939. Okay. Well, aren't Titus and Spiller different in that, that there the assignee is suing on a judgment that was obtained in a forum where Article Three didn't apply? No, absolutely not, Justice Alito. Why is that irrelevant? Because for the exact reason Mr. Phillips gave you, the, the Asarco case — and Coleman v. Miller, Justice Frankfurter's concurring opinion, and a number of other cases stand for the proposition that the party who invokes the jurisdiction of this court or of any other federal court must satisfy Article Three. So when Spiller, the secretary of the Cattlemen's Association, went to the federal district court seeking enforcement of the reparations award he had gotten before the ICC, he had to satisfy Article Three. When Titus came to this court, arguing that the lower courts had not properly given full faith and credit, he had to satisfy Article Three. Each of those uh, parties invoking the jurisdiction of the federal court was someone who had to turn over 100 percent of the proceeds to the assignors. And in each case, this Court rejected the argument that he was not a proper plaintiff. Counsel, you say in your brief that there's no reason for concern about the absence of concrete adverseness. But I would have thought there's a great deal of reason for concern in that your client doesn't care if he wins or loses. My client it's all the same to him. If he wins, he doesn't get to keep the money. If he loses, he loses. Well, that, that, that's false in every possible respect, Your Honor. He does keep, get to keep some of the money. Now, we haven't proved that in the lower courts. It's an allegation at this point, but it happens to be true. But aside from I that, thought and the I, question I, came to us on the assumption that he doesn't retain any of the money. On the assumption, but not the fact. Second, my client's whole reason for existence is to collect payphone compensation. This is what my client does day in and day well, out. I thought our, not our case has made clear that that kind of, uh, uh, forget what we call it, it's a separate interest from the injury that you're alleging in the lawsuit. You don't allege in the lawsuit that the basis for Article Three injury is that you're in this line of work, and if the work dries up, you're in big trouble. That wouldn't be enough to support Article Three standing. No, what's enough to support Article Three standing is the interest of the assignors, as the Court held in Vermont Agency. Well, but then why is the assignee bringing the lawsuit? The assignee has no independent injury. The, the assignee is bringing the lawsuit for the most pragmatic of all possible reasons. Mr. Phillips wanted to talk a lot about discovery, and Justice Kennedy and I believe Justice Souter asked, why is this lawsuit in federal court instead of before the FCC? There are good answers to those questions. The discovery in federal court, the discovery available in federal court, is more appropriate uh, to — is more necessary in a large case, a $200 million case like this one, than in a relatively small case. I'm sorry, million. we got off the track here. We, we did. I'm point. trying to find out what the assignee's injury is. The assignee's injury. And how it's redressed by the receipt of the money. It, it is, as this Court said in Vermont Agency, the assignor's injury, and it is redressed by no, the But, you know, Vermont order. Agency, obviously, the, the assignee <laughs> recovers something himself that he gets to keep, the bounty. Here that's not the case. Here that's not the case, but the reasoning of Vermont Agency specifically rejected the proposition that the bounty was helpful to the assignee's standing. And there's not a word in Vermont Agency that says when you combine the bounty with the assignor's interest, that's enough. It just says the assignor's interest is enough, full stop. I, thought it, the said, ancient I doctrine. thought it said, Mr. Englert, that, that the United States has 
is treated as having assigned part of its claim for damages to the key TAM relator, and that gave the um, key TAM plaintiff a stake in the action, a stake <coughs> in the proceeds. I thought that uh, Vermont agency, and Justice Scalia will correct me if I'm wrong, was envisioning the kind of assignment that just Judge Santel was talking about. This is their assignments, and then there are assignments. I was under the same misimpression, I have to say. Well, I wrote it. <laughs> the, the assignment in this case conveys all right, title, and interest. It conveys it for purposes of collection, to be sure, but it conveys all right, title, and interest. Now, the proposition that the four purposes of collection purpose of an assignment negates the ability of the plaintiffs to sue is one that has been litigated many times in federal courts, and that argument has been rejected in every case in which it's come up until now, including two from this court. So between the fact that the reasoning of Vermont agency, whatever the facts were, relied on the interest of the assignor, relied on the ancient doctrine that the assignee for Article Three purposes stands in the assignor's shoes, and the fact that this argument has been rejected in every case in which it's come up, I think the case for Article Three standing is quite strong here. Well, I must say, we, we seem to have come full circle from uh, Flast versus Cohen, which, uh, which said that uh, the doctrine of standing has nothing whatever to do with Article Three, that it all, the, the only thing it's there for is to assure that concrete adverseness on which uh, our adversary system depends. Uh, we've come full circle from that to now your argument that co that concrete adverseness doesn't matter at all. Oh, Mr. Chief, uh, isn't there some Scalia. combination of the two that's possible? That maybe one of the elements of uh, Article Three standing is is that uh, both parties have a stake in winning and losing. There is tremendous concrete adverseness in this case, and both parties have a great stake in winning and losing. The the Aggregator doesn't get to keep the money, although actually it does, but this case can be decided on the assumption, subject to remand, that it doesn't get to keep the money. But it exists for the purpose of bringing, of, of obtaining redress from carriers, obtaining payphone compensation from carriers, usually outside the litigation process. But this is, this is what my client does. Well, the Sierra does. Club protect, move, you know, undertakes activities to protect the environment, but that doesn't give it standing in every environmental case to sue. It needs to show members with a concrete uh, interest and so on. The fact that your client's in the business of suing on behalf of payphone no, operators. My client's not in the business of suing on behalf of payphone operators. My client's in the business of collecting, usually outside the litigation process. And this is merely an extension of the day-to-day -day operations. Can, can you tell me, is, is this 1,400 causes of action or is, or is it one? One. How, do, how does that come about? So suppose a lot of people owe the bank money, a lot of farmers owe the bank money. Can there be an assignment and then there's one cause of action? Sure. And, and let me give you a very important how, pragmatic and reason why. how does why. the law express uh, the, the, the metaphysical process in which 1,400 causes of action become one cause of action? Well, they are all assigned to one entity that brings the cause of action, just as a trustee brings causes of action. Well, but it's not a representative cause of action. I mean, what, what is the magic point at which it becomes one cause of action? The point at which they are all assigned to one entity that bring, then brings the cause of action, and importantly has authority to settle the cause of action without any further permission from the clients. 
the, the, a very, very important protection here I'm for Mr. Still missing, I'm still missing something here. Can you give me an example of where this is happening, other cases that this Court has heard or that are commonly heard? Every Rule 23 class action. Every oh, Rule oh, 23 that's, class that's, action. That's, every associational that's, standing that's case. Every trustee action. action. I, I interrupted you, and, and I talked over you. Every Rule 23, by the way. And what else? Every associational standing case. Every action brought by a trustee. Well, associational standing, Sierra Club versus Morton, they're interested in an ongoing injury in which there's a common, in which there's a common injury. These are, these are liquidated amounts. But that's not uncommon, Your Honor. I, Justice Souter's opinion for the Court in United Food and Commercial Workers v. Brown Group quoted a Seventh Circuit opinion <laughs> that said, Representative damages litigation is common, from class action under Rule 23 to suits by trustees representing hundreds of creditors in bankruptcy, to parents' patriae actions by state governments, to litigation by and against executors of decedents' estates. This is something that happens every day in federal. Those are usually ongoing injuries as to which there is a common interest in stopping the injury. Here you're aggregating liquidated amounts. It, it's actually not entirely liquidated amounts. There are ongoing disputes about ongoing pay phone compensation. But I don't think it would make any difference even if that weren't true. I, I might understand it if it was some sort of an injunction action, say, in the future, please pay what you're supposed to pay. No, but, Justice Kennedy, consider the typical Rule 23 damages action, which is about past amounts due, in, in the ordinary case. You have one cause of action on behalf of the class instead of many causes of action on behalf of, of many people. It happens all the time. But that's allowed because the requisites for class actions have been, have been met, and that's authorized by the rules. That's not true here. Because we have something much better here. What we have here, Justice Kennedy, is assignments of the cause of action by every plaintiff to my clients, completely well, green to be there a lot of better procedures that are in the rules, but that's not in the rules. Actually, it is. Rule 17 was, was put in the rules, and if you read the works of Judge Charles Clark, you'll see that Rule 17 was put in the rules to authorize just this kind of action to be brought in the name of assignees, including assignees for collection. And one year after he joined the I, I Federal — I ask a fact question. I'm just a little puzzled, and I probably should ask Mr. Phillips, but — what issues of fact are there going to be in this case? It seems to me everything ought to be on a computer somewhere, and I'm just a matter of pushing the right button, and you know how much money you owe. Am I missing something? You're not missing something, Justice Stevens. That's what this case is about, is computer records, massive computer records in the possession of the carriers, and some tools the aggregators have to analyze computer records. Except for counterclaims. I mean, he says they have some counterclaims. He says he has some counterclaims, but in nine years of litigation, his clients have never used Rule 19. They've never used Rule 22. They've never made any effort. He says we, we have asserted they have to go out and bring 1,400 separate lawsuits. What we said on page 10 of our brief was they have never tried in nine years of litigation. Well, what would they do? I mean, you mentioned uh, necessary parties, but these other — on your, your own theory, the PSPs are not necessary parties, and the, this is a d defendant seeking to join additional plaintiffs, and that's rather odd. And it, you also talk about interpleader. I don't know who's the stakeholder in this picture. Well, Your Honor, my point is that there are many 
procedural devices available to deal with many situations like this, Rule 19 and Rule 22 and separate lawsuits. If there were serious counterclaims in this case, first of all, as a factual matter, AT&T and Sprint would know it from their own records. And second, they would have done something in nine years to try to bring a claim against a PSP. They've done nothing in nine years. So this is a very, very odd case in which to be worrying about whether they've lost some rights because the PSPs are — lost some counterclaim rights because the PSPs are an individual party. It's also a very odd case in which to be worrying about discovery rights because the PSPs aren't individual parties, because that issue was resolved in their favor in 2002 by the special master's discovery order saying, just as Justice Stevens postulated, the aggregator is ordered to go out and get the information from the PSPs. Now, they complained that some of the PSPs, some of these mom-and-pop operations, said we don't have any information. That's because, for the most part, the PSPs don't have any information. The information resides with the carriers and with the aggregators. So, as a purely practical, pragmatic matter, this is not the case in which to be worrying that some discovery rights have been lost. This is not the case in which to be worrying that some counterclaim rights have been lost. This is not the case in which to be worrying that my clients aren't bound. Every single — I'm sorry, that the PSPs aren't bound, the assignors aren't bound, because every single one of them has signed an agreement, or two agreements, really, saying it will be bound. What this comes down to is a series of abstractions put up against the tradition of allowing lawsuits by assignees for collection. Well, I guess it could be that — that you're asking them to go back into records that are somewhat old. What you're asking to find out is, is every call made out of a payphone that was long-distance call, and we don't even know who actually turned out to be the carrier. It's like asking them, tell us exactly on the payphone at that corner over there, uh, who was called at 9.15 a.m. Uh, to uh, some number in 1987. And maybe they should have records of that, but they don't. No, they do. I've they, they do. There's no, there's they no say argument. Maybe the time necessary to go through those records to figure out whether you should give 12 cents uh, to the person who ran that payphone is really not worth it. Well, and uh, therefore, if they're right in some claim like that, is there a way to get this worked out at the FCC? I mean, it, 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 I don't think it was the purpose of this statute to have 12-cent claims, even aggravated, brought back years later under some set of procedural rules that will be so expensive to get the discovery that it just won't be worth it. Now, that might be right. And if it is right, or whether it's right, can the FCC work this out? Your Honor, several points, if I may. 47 U.S.C. Section 276 says that uh, payphone service providers are to be compensated for each and every payphone call. So it was Congress's purpose to make every 24-cent call compensable. And the FCC set up a very elaborate system to make them keep records. And they, they kept those records. System, I'm aware. Now, as — and there's about $200 million at stake in this case, so this is not about each 24-cent payphone call individually. There this is a yeah. properly aggregated case. My question is, to get to that figure, there may be billions of calls for I.O.I. know. There are. And it could be quite expensive to track down each of those calls individually. I don't know if it is or not. But if it is, is there a way to get this problem worked out at the FCC, or do we have the cabbage case grown large? Your Honor, my client has brought scores of these actions. My clients have brought scores of these actions, some before the FCC, the largest ones, and this is the largest one of all, in federal court to get the advantage of the discovery processes of federal court. Most of these cases settle. 
These cases, as Justice Stevens pointed out, are about analyzing computer records, and you can fight to the death or you can say, let's figure out who owes whom what and let's settle. And most of the cases settle. There's no reason why there should be any more or less incentive to settle when the case is before the FCC than when it's before a federal court. Settlement, they may work out that if it is, for example, costs a dollar to fight a claim that's worth 12 cents individually before you get to billions, they don't want to be in that situation where they're really paying money for nothing, because in their opinion, they already paid. I mean, we understand this kind of problem. So I go back to my question. They have one view of it. You have another of what's going on here. And their view is very unfavorable to your clients, and your client's view is very unfavorable to their clients. So I would like to know, is there a way to get this worked out at the FCC? Maybe that will turn out not to be relevant in this case, but I'd still like to know your opinion. Well, this case was brought in federal court under a statute that permits the plaintiffs to choose whether to go to federal court or the FCC. The reason it's nine years old is not because we didn't sue immediately. It's because we've been litigating for nine years about our right to litigate. Does the FCC have a useful role to play in this process at this point? Never say never, but I don't see one. The case was brought in federal court under a doctrine that has always allowed assignees for collection to sue in federal court. And there's no reason I can think of why it shouldn't proceed in federal court. Mr. Engler, is, is this one, one lawsuit or, or 1,400 lawsuits? I mean, however many clients you have. So it's one lawsuit. But how can it be? How is it one lawsuit when there, I mean, a lot of individual claims. You, you think you could have brought this as a class action? Uh, we, after Judge Huvel dismissed this case, we moved in the alternative to amend our complaint to add either 1,400 individual plaintiffs or a class action. The, the plaintiffs opposed that, and then she reversed herself on reconsideration. Yeah, they opposed it on what seemed to me the reasonable ground, that, that each of these claims is quite different. They're different, uh, different calls, uh, different, uh, different amounts owing. Uh, each, each case is not going to be judged on the same, on the same facts. That, that's really not true, Justice Lee. Just as a pure practical matter, leaving aside theory, this is about analyzing computer databases. This is about analyzing call records. Because of the system the FCC set up, none of the information resides with the PSPs. It resides with the aggregators and with the carriers. Do you agree this could not have been brought as a class action? No, I don't concede that. Why didn't you bring it as a class action? I'm sorry? Then why didn't you bring it as a class action? We can all go home. Because it's so much better to bring it on behalf of individuals who have expressly consented to be bound than on behalf of people who may not even know about it and may not have consented to be bound and may not want to be bound as in the typical class action. There are all kinds of problems with class actions. Class actions are typically brought by enterprising law firms who may not even have ever met their clients. This is, the, this is a different kind of litigation altogether. This is litigation by a trade association that exists to, to uh, collect payphone compensation doing the same thing it always does, only doing it in court, on behalf of 1,400 companies that each signed an agreement saying, I want you to go do this for me, and I agree to be bound by the result. And I assign you all right title and interest. Can can you — this is giving me a thought here. Just a totally imaginary case, nothing to do with your clients. Put yourself in the opposite position. Suppose you were representing a defendant, and that defendant were asked by this imaginary plaintiff to dig up records on the computer, you dig up each individual record cost one dollar. There were billions of such records. And the value to you, to the other side, the plaintiff, imaginary, in this case, was 12 cents a call. Okay? So you say, look, those people are asking us to dig up billions of records 
It's going to cost us a dollar each to do it. And all they're going to get out of it is 12 cents a call. But, of course, we're the ones who have to pay the dollar, and they get the 12 cents. Now, is there a way for the legal system to solve that problem? Yes. Other than standing? Push the parties to settle. That's what rational economic Well, the defendant says, now your client, I'm not going to settle. There are no such claims. This is ridiculous, but it's going to cost me a dollar to prove it. Yes, the client says millions for defense, but not one one cent for tribute, and every lawyer gets happy because the client wants to litigate to the death instead of just uh, surrendering to extortion. In that kind of case, they have to decide whether the economically rational thing is to set a bad precedent or is to to settle. That happens all the day for defense counsel, and I'm quite often defense counsel. But this case is not of that nature. Speaking of one cent for tribute, I mean, it's pretty easy to get rid of this problem, isn't it? Prospectively. But why why don't your agreements just say, and you get to keep $10 out of every sum that you recover, then we wouldn't have this problem. I agree, and we made that point in our brief in opposition to cert. This case is of no practical significance going forward for the body of the law. There, there's nothing this Court is going to decide in this case that is going to make a difference. People will just draft their assignment agreements so differently. So why, doesn't, my why doesn't the tie, why doesn't the tie go to Article 3? <laughs> I mean, if it makes no difference either way, I'd like to preserve the uh, significance of Article 3 as a limit on court jurisdiction. Article 3 is a proper and important limit on court jurisdiction when it, when it restricts court jurisdiction. When we have a traditional cause of action, the abstractions that have come to be thought of as Article 3 jurisprudence don't trump tradition. Well, what Article, well, we talked about is well case- Article 3 does trump tradition. I mean, if, if it doesn't meet Article 3, no, no amount of tradition can save it. And you several times refer, when asked one of these questions, to the tradition and the old cases, but I haven't heard an answer yet to the concrete injury that is suffered by the uh, aggregators. The, the, as, on the assumption on which this case comes to the Court, the aggregator's injury is the assigned injury of the assignors. We are, we are taking the principle of Vermont agency and saying that applies just as much to assignees for collection as it does to any other assignees. Contrary to Mr. Phillips' position and Judge Sentel's position that there are assignments and then there are assignments, the law has, has looked many times at the question whether there are assignments and then there are assignments. The argument that assignees for collection should be treated differently has been made many times. It's never prevailed in federal court unless and until it prevails in this case. Mr. Engler, could, could you to the legal title, that, that would it make a difference if the uh, assignee did not have legal title? Was just a, oh, it would make a huge difference, Justice Ginsburg. So, but is that just a formality? For example, the question I asked Mr. Phillips: Could a creditor of the aggregator get at this money when the check is paid by ATT and Sprint? and therefore reduce the amount available to distribute to the PSBs? Well, if we assume insolvency and we assume a secured creditor, then yes, I think the PSBs are general unsecured creditors and the secured creditor is in line ahead of them. Different facts, different results. But, but yes, it does make a difference if the assignee enters insolvency, which is not going to happen in this case, but if the assignee enters insolvency, and if there is a creditor that arguably under insolvency <coughs> principles has a higher claim than the PSPs, yes, it does make a difference. The how, about, how about for tax purposes? Must the aggregator report the proceeds as income? 
Your Honor, I'm sorry. I just don't know the answer to that question. I'm, I'm guessing they either don't report them as income or they report them as income but then have a deduction in the exact same amount. But I, don't, I really don't know the answer. Mr. Angler, can you, can you explain to me again how it is that when you acquire 14 separate shows as in action, 14 separate claims against the same defendant, just by your acquiring them, they, they sort of melt into one cause of action. How, how, does that, how does that happen? That happens the same way it happens under Rule 23. It happens the same way it happens with a trustee who, who is representing people who would otherwise have many different causes of action. It's a, it's a very common thing in federal court. That if, a trust, if a bankruptcy trustee or, or if a, a class representative brings a lawsuit on behalf of many people, then there is one cause of action. Instead of the many causes of action, there would be if those many people sued directly. It's in not in all of those cases, the class action, the trustee, though, the, the named plaintiff, the named trustee has concrete injury and redressability uh, to themselves. No the more trustee, than my clients. Very much more than your clients. The trustee has legal obligations that he has to discharge. If it's a suit that he should bring on behalf of the beneficiaries and doesn't do it, He's sued for breach of trust. In the class action case, the representative has to have standing, has to show concrete injury and redressability. Here don't, we don't have any of that. I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. My clients have legal obligations that they have to discharge. They are embodied in the very agreements reproduced in the back of the red brief that require us to pursue this action and require us to turn over. Why do we have Rule 23 that requires certification of a class action? If you can say, well, I don't need Rule 23, I'm going to take 1,400 claims and make them one anyway. For very good reasons. Rule 23 exists to protect absent plaintiffs, something we don't have here, and to protect defendants so that they will know there will be a race judicata effect of the judgment, whether for them or against them, so that they can't be sued by other class members. They have those protections. In fact, if you read the blue and yellow briefs in this case, they keep referring in the abstract to the protections of Rule 23, but they don't identify a single concrete protection that they do not have under this system. Rule 23 is inferior to an action by assignees for collection in every imaginable way. It's not a superior alternative. And to say that the existence of Rule 23 means we should throw out a traditional form of action that's been recognized for well over a century would be a very surprising result. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Angler. Three minutes, Mr. Phillips. You might start by the point your friend just made. What is the protection uh, that Rule 23 provides that you don't have? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The the specific protection is that the Court determines how the settlements will play out. They make sure that all of the requirements of Rule 23 are satisfied before the litigation goes forward. That means that there is a demonstration of commonality, that the the predominance issue is resolved, that this is a matter that should be litigated in this forum because it is a more efficient mechanism for litigating it, not because the assinee has decided that this is a more efficient way from the assinee's perspective. And our problems are are the requirements of typicality and uh, uh, um, the same type of injury uh, designed in part to preserve the rights of the defendant? Yes, of course, because you don't want to have all of this litigation being heaped on on a particular uh, defendant under these circumstances, there's an efficiency to this process that the rules anticipate. And I think you're absolutely right, Justice Kennedy. There's simply no reason in the world to say we're going to allow this to be as a substitute for existing doctrines under either Rule 23 but or associations. Suppose, suppose this had been mounted as a class action. I take it you would oppose certification. Uh, to be sure. I guess and, uh, and one of the reasons would be that these are all different situations, 
different amounts involved in each case. Some you would have a counterclaim, not others. I assume you would say they're not enough alike. To, absolutely, Justice Ginsburg. We would oppose this. I don't think that this is a proper case for class, uh, class certification, but it seems to me that that doesn't mean, okay, and therefore the answer to this is come up with some other contrivance in order to litigate this in a way that obviously maximizes the convenience to one side without regard to the protections that are designed both for the defendant and for the court that's embodied in Rule 23. Mr. Phillips, do you attach any significance to the fact that every member of the so-called class here has individually agreed to be bound by the judgment? Well, it's interesting because they, they, in one, in, in the assignment part of it, they say they're bound, but on the, on the separate set of the agreement, it talks about in the reasonable discretion of the assignee. So the, the agreement is, to my mind, inherently contradictory as to but what are the obligations. The assignee, but the assignor has agreed to be bound, I thought. If right, the but it's reasonable. Says, it says reasonable discretion. Yeah. And so the question is, is you know, is this, was that a, a, an exercise of reasonable discretion? And I don't know the answer to that in any given case. And I, and I think part of the, Justice Kennedy and Justice Breyer, you asked the question about above and beyond discovery. What are the other problems that arise when you go down this? And, and, and the, more, the, the other one is that being bound by the judgment. If you have a complete assignment of the chosen action, the assignee then is completely bound. There's nothing left. The Asinor has no rights left. There's nothing left for the Asinor to do in that situation. Whereas in these kinds of situations where the Asinee receives the, the right to go forward, but the remedy is in, in, in another party's hands, the potential of being bound is completely lost. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted.